I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 445 for February 24th, 2015. On today's show, we celebrate the Jazz Session's 8th anniversary. That's right, it was 8 years ago today, February 24th, 2007, that episode number 1 was posted. It was an interview with saxophonist Grant Stewart, and the sound quality was not, not very good as I recall. Funnily enough, he was on the show some number of years later for another anniversary, and again, I think the sound quality wasn't very good. I can't remember why that happened. I think he ended up being, the first time, it was before I had any good recording equipment, and the second time it ended up being over a bad phone connection. So Grant has not had much luck with good audio quality here on the Jazz Session. Today, what I thought I would do is just play you some clips from the last eight years of the show and uh, give you a little idea, a little flavor of what it's been like over the years. At least in my mind, the episode that put the show on the map, which was a very early interview with John Abercrombie. He was on the show in 2007, uh, very shortly after it started, and uh, it was just the third episode. It aired on March 12th, 2007, and I... To be honest, I don't exactly even remember how it came to be, uh, how anyone would have allowed John Abercrombie to go on this show that had an audience of about the same number of people as the episode number. But he was here, and here he is. Can I ask you to say a few words about Michael Brecker? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael and I, uh, I mean, I knew Michael from about 19, I think, well, late 60s. I, I, I met both him and Randy when I was in, living in Boston. And I was playing, there used to be two clubs in Boston. One was called the Jazz Workshop, and the other was called Paul's Mall. These two clubs were connected. The Jazz Workshop was obviously a jazz venue, and the Paul's Mall was more like a supper club. And being a lo local Berkeley uh, student, I was hired to play in the, this supper club for a mere pittance, you know, because that's what they did with student musicians in those days. And so I would play in this club, but I could walk through the back of this one club into the jazz workshop and I could hear you know I'd, I'd hear Coltrane play I'd hear Bill Evans and one one time I heard uh, Mike and Randy playing with Horace Silver and they had come next door and hear, to hear me because they were just on a break and they wandered into the club next door and they heard me play and they liked what they heard so that's where I met them so I, I actually know Mike and Mike I knew Michael from about 1966 or something so that goes back quite a quite a number of years, and they, they called me uh, when I was still living in Boston and asked me to come down and audition for a band called Dreams, which was a fusion band, kind of with a singer. So I moved to New York in the late 60s and started playing with them and developed a relationship with both Mike and Randy. And, uh, but Mike was kind of just special, you know. I mean, I, I don't know what the right word for it is. He, uh, I mean, it's, it's beyond the, the technical aspect of what he could do on the saxophone, which was formidable and sort of beyond what anybody could have done, I think. It was just his feeling as a musician. I mean, he was a, he was a, a deep thinker. He was a really profound guy. He was an extremely nice person. 
and we got along really well. And uh, he played in a couple of my CDs in later years, uh, a CD called Night and another one called uh, Getting There. And we did a couple of tours with Mark Johnson and Peter Erskine and myself and Mike. It, it's funny, when you, when you know somebody for that long, it's almost like you don't think about them as a... Uh, this amazing musician, you just think of this, them as pers this person you knew or you know who plays great. But I, I just always felt very comfortable with Mike as, as, as a person and a player. And I think we, he connected with me, and I just I miss him dearly. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. I think it was a tragedy. But I know he'd been suffering for years, and... Uh, I think that's, it, there's just no way around it. I mean, it's just hard to even put into words, you know, how you feel about somebody like that. You know, it's, he was just a very good friend, you know, and besides being a great musician, he was just a wonderful person and a great friend, and I enjoyed making music with him tremendously, and uh, I will miss him and hope that I, you know, <laughs> wherever he is, that he's playing, you know, and having a good time, and if there is another place to go to, you know. This is something we don't know, but um, obviously it's just, you know, it's more personal for me with Mike than, than anything just because I knew him. We were sort of kids. I think I met, I think he was, couldn't have been more than about 19 when I met him, or 20, and I was probably around, I think Mike was 56, 57. I'm 62, so, you know, I'm, close, I'm, I'm his brother's age. I'm Randy's age. And, uh, so, you know, he was basically just a little bit younger than me, and uh, I really loved playing with him and loved being with him, and he was just a tremendous guy. You know? The show has been recorded in all kinds of strange places uh, over the years. My parents moved to Manhattan sometime during the run of the show, a couple years into it. And so I would go down to visit them, and sometimes I would do interviews uh, while I was down there just saying hello to them. And at one point, I interviewed drummer Carl Allen at my parents' dining room table. Now, it was interesting enough to have this very high-profile musician at my parents' dining room table. But as I remember it, it was close to 1 o'clock in the morning. Carl had, uh, I think, been uh, one of the, the kind of judges on for auditions for people who were trying to get into Juilliard, where he taught and behind which my parents lived. And he wasn't done until very late at night. And uh, I asked my mom and dad if they would mind if, you know, they were long in bed, uh, but if they would mind if Carl came over to do this interview, and they said, no, he can come over whenever he wants. So about 1 o'clock in the morning, we sat down to chat. You know, Rodney and I have always had this thing of of kind of, if you will, globalizing the music in a sense that we, we both come up playing in church. And so for us, the music that we've been known for playing in terms of the straight ahead has come out of our early experiences. And so this tune, Speak to My Heart, is, is a tune that, that was most recently popularized by Donnie McClurkin. And uh, it was just something that, that Rodney said, man, I've been hearing this tune. And on the first record we did, we did We Fall Down, which is Donnie McClurkin. He said, I got this other Donnie McClurkin tune, I would like to try it. I said, okay. 
But it it uh, it kind of went with the theme of what we were trying to get to in terms of, you know, man, it's been <laughs> rotten jokes about how, you know, the first record when we had during the previous administration, it was called Get Ready. <laughs> and so now we got a new administration, it's about work to do. <laughs> But this, this this particular track just kind of goes with the the overall theme of just, you know, let's try to put some craziness behind us. And it's really about coming into a place of peace and love and support for one another and each everyone's endeavors. And, and uh, But that title, you know, Speak to My Heart, is just, Rodney said he would put this on in the morning sometimes when he'd be in his office and crying, you know, so... But uh, that's how it came about. Rodney, Rodney brought it in, and, and you know, and I was all for it. Another place the show uh, has been recorded is in front of a live audience. That has very rarely happened. It happened uh, a few times at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival. And it also happened another time with trombonist Jen Baker and vocalist Kyoko Kitamura recorded at a Manhattan location in a record store. And it was really fun. And they both performed and talked, and we had a great time. If if Kyoko is going in a certain character, I you know I really need to go with that, or make a choice to go a totally different direction and have those diverging characters happening at the same time. But it's always um, it's a much more I wouldn't say tense, but almost tense sure. dynamic. So that anything one of us does is going to affect how the whole thing works. Yeah, there's kind of no coasting. Right. Yeah. Which is, I think, what we both really love about it. <laughs> sure. Because, you know, you just have to be really focused and, and ready to, to jump in any direction at any moment. Very early in the life of the show, I had a chance to interview Gene Bertoncini. This was when I lived in Rochester, and Gene, uh, I think this was in July of 2007, and at that time, I was riding my bike everywhere. Uh, this is when I was really into bicycling, which I would remain for, for quite a number of years. And Gene was doing the Tritone Jazz Fantasy Camp at uh, Nazareth College, it was housed that year. And I lived in downtown Rochester, and that's a little bit of distance. It's not terrible, but, you know, probably a half an hour bike ride or something. And it was July, and it was incredibly hot. And I just remember arriving at the interview essentially soaked through to the skin with sweat and uh, kind of disgusting. <laughs> but Gene was kind enough not to point it out. And here's a little bit of what we recorded that day. Well, you know, I just uh, the first time I came up here, uh, I had just I uh, was recommended by actually Manny Alden, who I'd done some work with recording wise, and I got into a a classroom with about seven guitar players, and I and uh, I you know I just started speaking about what I was doing, you know, on the on the instrument harmonically and linearly, and I found that uh, in fact I did have uh, uh, an approach 
which I I wasn't that aware of. So when you when you have to teach, you have to say, well, what am I doing actually? Um, how, how did I how did I develop this? And I and I and I thought about actually the scales I practiced and the songs I learned and and my experiences working with other people, and that that stuff becomes more formulated as you have to do it. And I was lucky to have the chance, and they took a chance initially having me here so has teaching changed the way you play or the way you arrange has <clears throat> it made you more conscious of it or has it just made you more conscious of what you already I think doing? it I think you 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 learn you learn from teaching I don't quite know uh, how, how to specify what I learned but I think when you're it, it just uh, solidifies what you know you know if you start talking about it and, exp and explaining it and then so and then you surprise yourself. Oh, I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> so that's all. It's all very important. It's, you you really don't learn anything until you teach it. I mean, you really don't know anything until you teach it. Until you express it like that. One of the the seminal moments uh, in my life, one of the huge things that that changed the way I think about a lot of things, and and really, uh, I don't know, was I always say it was kind of my my moon landing or my D day was Hurricane Katrina, and uh, after Katrina, I tried to interview as many New Orleans musicians as I could, and I just remember being very moved, getting a chance to sit in the tiny green room at Jazz Standard and talk with trumpeter and composer Terrence Blanchard. You think about everything that this country has gone through, you know, and to go through that and then in the middle of a recession, you know, the way things are going in this country right now with the war. I mean, we have a lot on our plate, man. Um, but the thing is, uh, I, these people have a have a genuine spirit and love and passion for this city. You know, I'll just tell you this story that kind of typifies what's been going on in New Orleans. You know, when we started to rebuild my mom's home, um, the contractor, this young guy who was doing the work, he was doing a lot of the homes in, in my mom's neighborhood. And he told me, he said, man, you know what's interesting? He says, you know, a lot of the homes that he was working on were of elderly people. And he was telling them, he said, listen, now that your home is gutted, why don't we update it? We could we could change this. I could do this. I could put this in. We could do that. And he said 90% of the people that he told that to said, can you just make it like it was? Because people just wanted to go home. They're not trying to take advantage of the system or doing it. They just want to go home. It's just that simple. How does, uh, how does music stand up in the face of all that? Or is it the only thing, one of the only things they can? I think it was one of the only things that could at the time. At that time. You know, because... And right in the aftermath of the hurricane, there were some local musicians, uh, Shannon Powell and some other guys who stayed, and they are kind of like the other set of unsung heroes, you know, like the first set of those those helicopter pilots, those guys who were just threw out the books and was flying, you know, round the clock saving people. Then the National Guard came in, you know, General Honoré and those guys did a, great, a tremendous job too. But then you had the cleanup crews coming in. And then you had the workers coming in, and you had locals who were still there. And they were seeing serious devastation every day, all day, every day, all day. 
And the one thing that kept their spirits high is going out and hearing some music and going out and feeling a bit of normalcy in the midst of all of this chaos. And I remember going home, uh, and I went to one of the clubs in the French Quarter, and uh, it was really interesting, man, because outside on the street, some of the street lights were off. They had stop signs in the middle of intersections where, they would have, where, where there used to be traffic lights. But you went in this club, and it was like everything was cool. <laughs> you know, guys were playing music, people were having a good time and enjoying themselves. Everybody was talking about what was going on, obviously, but it gave people a break. And so I think the music stood right in the face of it and said, listen, man, you're not going to break us. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We just have to get through this moment of insanity, but we'll, but we'll be fine. My guest is Terrence Blanchard. The new album is called Choices, and uh, it's, a, it's a distinct honor for me to, to talk with you. I really thank you for doing it. Oh, man, thank you. It's my pleasure. clip is another one from early on uh in the life of the show when i started the show it was just after i had left jazz 90.1 a a jazz station where i had worked well not just after it was a couple years after uh and during the time that i was at jazz 90.1 in rochester new york uh, there was a jazz festival that started in rochester the jazz festival became a pretty big deal and in 2007 uh, don byron was there and I had a nice interview with him uh, back in one of the, the kind of green room places at the Eastman Theater. But the part that I most remember is when someone slipped a package under the door. It supports the way that speech happens in the regions. What is that? Hey, brother. Hey, get in that cell. God, look. You know, it's like some package comes down through, through the door. You know, it's like, man, you know, like, I, I don't even know what that was. I was no. just like. Some mysterious hand you know, shoved it under the hey, door. Hey, bus driver. Just hold this package. Oh, get in that cell. God damn. You know, like, I just thought it was going to, you know. As long as it doesn't explode, I'm happy. Yeah, just as long as it doesn't explode, or as soon as I touch it, like somebody from the DEA doesn't appear. But that had like had an ominous look to it. I wasn't really feeling that. I've ended up in some unlikely places while doing the jazz session, and uh, part of that is because I as, tried as much as possible to go to the homes of the people I was interviewing, and that meant that at one point I was sitting at Ron Carter's dining room table. I think when musicians play take three, four, and five, then they just get so focused on can they play better that the big picture, the music, kind of escapes them. 
And uh, I explained to them that, Jim, we have one take. If you get the two takes, I've made a mistake. And uh, to let them know that, uh, kind of like the big band in the old days, guys knew, man, they had eight bars for a solo. They knew they didn't have 16 minutes for a tune. And whatever they had to say, they had to say it in that space of time. Uh, so I'm just kind of alerting them to one, my level of intensity. If they weren't already aware of it, I was just kind of putting it on the table. And two, I would expect from them the same focus, the same concentration. And I would accept the, the, the dust on the diamond, as long as I got the diamond. <laughs> That's a great phrase. For the 100th episode of the Jazz Session, I spent a lot of time thinking about which big-name guest I would try to book until it occurred to me that the best person to talk about was the person who caused the Jazz Session to happen in the first place, which was my grandfather, Bernie Flanders, without whom I probably never would have gotten into this music. And so I did a tribute show to my grandpa, and here's a part of that. But anyway, around that time, when he was still working and my grandmother was working, she um, was a receptionist in a beauty salon at England Brothers in Pittsfield, a very elegant woman. Uh, they, you know, they had some friends, uh, people that they would hang out with, and uh, you know, my grandfather would would golf with my great uncle Jack, and he, they had some other, you know, some other pals. But as they got older, particularly after my grandpa retired and my my grandmother no longer worked uh, either. They really, they kind of closed in and focused on their family, and they really didn't have any friends anymore at all. I mean, they never went out and socialized, ever, that I can ever remember, uh, with the exception of family events. And so they watched a ton of television, and my grandfather listened to a lot of radio. My grandmother didn't didn't care so much for the radio, but my uh, but my grandpa would... <laughs> for a variety of reasons, sit in his own room. And wherever they lived, he always had his own room. Not necessarily his own bedroom, although I believe that was the case also, but I mean just his own space in the house that he would be in. Or the apartment, I should say, because they, after the early 40s, they never owned a house again. They always rented. And uh, he always had some space, and there'd be a few, th- you know, there'd always be some kind of chair, and there'd be a, you know, a lamp next to it, and a radio and a television in whatever room he was in. So it was, you know, The Price is Right and Wheel of Fortune, you know, that whole thing, Jeopardy. Uh, though I don't know why my grandmother watched Jeopardy. Because, <laughs> I don't know, she she eschewed learning in the, that kind of way, a kind of way that would have been useful on Jeopardy, but she watched it anyway. Um, he always had this room. There was always a radio and, uh, you know, all, always the music of your life type station playing, always big band music going on back in the room. And um, in later years, we would buy him cassettes and then CDs of big band music. And he would sometimes listen to those too, although I think he was still always partial to the radio if he could if he could get his kind of music on it. I think a large part of my, you know, my real passion for radio came from him too. Uh, and that idea of just being, you know, kind of in your own, your own space, your own environment. But anyway, one of the things he spent a lot of time watching was uh, the Lawrence Welk show. I mean, just he knew everybody in the Lawrence Welk show and uh, Lawrence Welk and that, that kind of fictional world that Lawrence Welk created, you know, where, where everything is perfect. 
um, I think was very attractive to my grandparents, who were definitely the kind of people who believed it had been better than it now was. And so um, one of the people who was... Uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember if he ever actually was a member of the Welk Band or if he was just a frequent guest, but was the clarinetist Pete Fountain um, uh, who from New Orleans. And uh, I would look at Pete Fountain very differently if I were introduced to him now because I have a, a at least an emotional connection to New Orleans that I, I did not have when I was growing up. But Pete Fountain's music was very important to me. And uh, very early on when I first started buying any kind of my own music, I bought some cassettes of Pete Fountain. And was a, a huge, huge fan of his. But even cooler than that was the fact that the first concert I ever went to was at least the first one I have any conscious memory of. Um, I'm, I don't know how old I was. I might have even been a preteen at this point. But my grandfather took me to see a double bill of Pete Fountain and Al Hurt, you know, two New Orleans giants of a particular kind. Um, and so let's hear a little Pete Fountain. While I was living in New York City, I had the pleasure of going up to Jimmy Heath's apartment in Queens. This was in February of 2012. Uh, this became the 350th episode for the fifth anniversary of the show. And we started with uh, Jimmy looking over uh, a fax he had received of a 1947 concert poster he had just received that morning. I had somewhere else to start, but when I got here... You showed me something that uh, made us both laugh, and this is something that you just received from uh, Jess's story and Lewis Porter. Uh, it's a flyer for a performance of your band in 1947, and maybe you can tell people the, the line on here that well, made us both laugh. I had never seen this flyer until Lewis Porter sent it to me, and it says the Club Eminon and the Elate Club Incorporated present for the first time a jazz concert and dance featuring Jimmy Heath's 17-piece orchestra, Johnny Lynch trumpet, formerly with Dizzy Gillespie and Andy Kirk, Johnny Coltrane <laughs> on alto saxophone, <laughs> formerly with Nat Toll. That's not true because I'm the one. You were formerly with Nat Toll. Yeah, Train never played. He played with uh, uh, some, with, uh, he didn't play with Nat Toll's. And Jimmy Thomas, romantic. Balladist. Balladist. <laughs> I-S-T. <laughs> I never heard of that one. Balladier, I heard. Yes. But balladist. <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah, he could have been dist. <laughs> James Young, uh, saxophone, direct from 52nd Street. That's a guy who was in the band named Sax Young. He's a tenor player that got his saxophone the same time I... His tenor at the same time I got my alto. In fact, he got a C melody. But anyway, and it's Sunday night, October the 5th, 1947, the Elates Club Auditorium. 
which is on Broad Street in Philadelphia. So my guess is that you're holding in your hand the only printed reference to Johnny Coltrane. I, I would <laughs> think so, because I knew him to all of, you know, when he got out of the Navy and came to Philly, his mother had moved, and he moved to Philly. And I've never heard Johnny Coltrane until I got this from <laughs> And I laughed when I got it. It was comical, man, because a man, you know, he's known as Train or John. You know, one name, a lot of people call him. I just call him John, you know. Uh, my brother Percy used to call him uh, Country John. Because he was a Cause, boy, was North Carolinian, he's from North like Carolina, person. right? <laughs> they both came from North Carolina, but Johnny, that's a good one. spent most of 2012 on tour around the U.S. and Canada, the Jazz or Bust Tour, which many of you may remember. And on that tour, I met many, many great people. Two of my favorites were Janelle and Anthony, who I interviewed on the porch of the owners of Cuneiform Records. Oh, well, um, first of all, we were living in many, many places over a five-year period. Um, we lived in, I think, I think, I moved 10 or 11 times and Anthony something like nine times. So it was a very transient period of time for us. Um, also, I had let go of a family, old family land that was just, you know, five, six generations of my family had lived there. This is Wedderburn? Wedderburn, yeah. yeah. Um, you should probably tell people about that because it is. Sure. It doesn't sound real when you just read a description of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and even when you went there, it didn't seem real. Um, around it was Tyson's Corner, just this uh, mall, <laughs> but the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Um, huge homes and lots of just like tiny suburbs everywhere. And that then uh, inside Waterburn was just. 12, 13 cottages um, hand-built by my ancestors, great-great-uncle George and his brothers. They all built these houses, and um, there was a piano in every cottage because it was a time before radio and entertainment was music, you know, that you made yourself. <laughs> um, also, there were ponds everywhere and um, certainly virgin forest um, which stood up until uh, about seven, eight years ago. So that was the beginning of, you know, this feeling of, well, where is home? <laughs> because that place, uh, which was very much a fairy tale land for me, um, and Anthony also, because he would visit me there periodically, you know, we would play music together. That's how we started playing music. Um, basically, once that place was destroyed, you know, um, had to start examining this idea, like, where is home?
there was a great vegan diner in uh, the Lower East Side of New York City, and honestly, I can't even remember the name of it. But the part I remember most was interviewing Darius Jones and Matthew Ship there. I think it was very close to Matthew's house. And the interview was great in and of itself. But this clip actually comes from a bit that happened before the interview because uh, Elton John was playing in the diner. His music, obviously, Elton John was not playing in the diner. Elton John's music was playing in the diner on the radio. And that led to this little bit of audio with Darius Jones and Matthew Ship about Elton John and a particular Elton John song. I do want to do Benny and the Jets on some album someday, actually. Yeah. And Space Oddity. There's oh, two songs nice. I want to record. I love Benny and the Jets. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> it's one of the greatest songs. There's no yeah, song yeah. Like, every time I hear it. There's no song in the history of music that sounds like that. Oh, you know, no, it just, yeah. like, came out of outer space. Yeah, exactly. He gave his soul for that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really did. That, that's truly one of the moments, one of the most magical moments in music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and every piece of that tune too. Everything, even like the beautiful like analog keyboard right, thing right, that happens right. at the yeah, end. And, oh, it's every all aspect, great. Of yeah. it oh, is yeah, like the fake crowd. The <laughs> right, oh. yeah, that's great. All right, here we go. <laughs> I think the first time I ever realized that the jazz session was going to take me into places I otherwise probably wouldn't go was when I had a chance to interview Steve Kuhn, who played with John Coltrane and recorded many, many, many wonderful albums and is still making great music. And I sat at Steve's kitchen table and he poured me a glass of water from one of those old Tupperware pitchers from the 70s. And I just thought... I'm sitting at the kitchen table of a guy who played regularly with John Coltrane. <laughs> I remember how excited I was about that and how gracious Steve was, and it was just a really fun interview. 26 weeks, I was there maybe 8 to 10 weeks, and then he got McCoy Tyner joined the band. And as I found out after the fact, he originally wanted McCoy, and McCoy had a contract with the jazz tet, Art Farmer and Benny Goldson, and he couldn't leave at the time this engagement had started, so... I was essentially just holding the chair down for him. But in those eight to ten weeks, it was an incredibly uh, intense experience for me musically and just working every night, six, well, six nights a week for those weeks, uh, something I'll always remember, just uh, the energy in the room that he evoked from the, with his solos. I mean, after his solos, people would literally get up out of their chairs and just as if it was a revival meeting, it just the, the reaction was incredible night after night after night after night so it was it was a really uh, very special atmosphere to be or be involved never experienced that in my life before playing in a group like that so it was uh, something i'll always remember just uh, he was a very humble man he didn't say much um, he just uh, completely devoted to the music 
completely. He, he just, when he wasn't uh, sleeping or eating, he had the horn in his mouth. It just, uh, <clears throat> I had never experienced that kind of dedication before with anybody. <clears throat> a lot of musicians, you know, they're looking at the ladies and they're doing other substance abuse. And John was straight as a pin at that time. He was uh, no issues with substance abuse. That was all in his past. And the only thing he did like was uh, he had an addictive personality, obviously. But uh, to his sugar craving, I think, he, he uh, was very fond of life's, the butter rum lifesavers, that particular flavor. So he always when you spoke with him you could smell the butter rum uh, he just popped them one after another and that was I guess his sugar fix if you will but uh, that was it as far as anything uh, he was uh, just about all about the music and uh, it was something of course I'll uh, remember the rest of my life It's great when on the jazz session I can catch people early in their careers and follow them as new things happen to them that they never could have imagined. As far as I remember, I was the first person ever to interview Joe Laurie, an Australian singer who played at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival. Tanglewood is in Lenox, Massachusetts, which is my hometown, and I went there for several years to do shows when I lived in Albany, New York, which is right across the New York border from where Tanglewood is. Uh, on my birthday in 2008, I released an episode which had an interview with Joe Laurie. This was recorded at the 2008 Tanglewood Jazz Festival. No one could have predicted that within a couple of years, Joe would get hired as a backing vocalist for Sting, and then she would spend the next several years, up until now, traveling the world in Sting's band and playing in front of stadiums full of people and being on television and doing all these amazing things. But this is an excerpt from an interview when Joe was singing jazz standards on the lawn in front of uh, the press meet-and-greet at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival in 2008. You know, it's kind of that cliched story of, you know, singing pretty much at the same time as, as learning to talk. Um, and when I was very young, you know, in, before I was... I guess when I was about, you know, eight or nine, I started doing gigs in churches. You know, I would just sing one or two items in the church service because I come from a church family. And I was singing in churches, and then actually when I was 12, I... Um, my mum took me to an audition for Les Mis and I got into Les Mis and that was an incredible experience and I decided for sure I knew that what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was be in musicals and that was sort of the plan for a little while and then and then I actually went overseas um, on a trip with World Vision and decided I wanted to be a doctor and so I kind of abandoned singing for a little while um, but then I realised that it was what I really wanted to do so I went um, and I did a little bit of classical study because that seemed the legitimate thing to do out of high school and 
that didn't really have the freedom or it just didn't resonate with me in the same way that jazz does and so my brother is um, a huge jazz fan and I was listening to a lot of his jazz records and I switched into the jazz program and from there it just progressed. I'm in a spin around you, a satellite in constant motion. Can't seem to win your attention, my just your true love and devotion. You can't seem to care. Not everyone who has been on the jazz session is still with us, sadly. Gene Ludwig is one of those. He passed away a few years ago. I saw Gene in Schenectady at a Unitarian church, and I had a chance to interview him also, became friends with Gene and his wife Patty, and in fact wrote a poem about Gene that appeared in my first book. He was a a really beautiful guy, and uh, I'm glad I had a chance to know him. And there is more out there going all the way back uh, to the 60s uh, and an affiliation with uh, another saxophonist uh, who just about everybody knows named Sonny Stitt. Can you talk about uh, how you first met Sonny? Well, Sonny uh, was working with Don Patterson and Billy James. Uh, Don was another uh, uh, excellent organ organist, and uh, of course Billy James, drummer. And uh, I had heard Sonny on the air for uh, years before I joined him, you know, and uh, I became uh, a fan of his, you know. And when John, uh, Don, and Billy uh, left the trio, uh, I was working with a drummer who lives in Lansing, Michigan now. Randy Gillespie, he uh, got uh, wind that Sonny was looking for a rhythm section, and he called me and said, uh, would you be interested in working with Sonny? I said, sure. So he uh, he called Sonny, and uh, we hooked up. I think our first job was at uh, Paul's Mall, uh, the jazz workshop in Boston, Massachusetts, and that was, I think, uh, November of 69. So Gene, was there an audition, or did you just, uh, you guys hooked up on the gig and decided oh, to see we, how it went no it was it was a done deal we hooked up and and uh uh the second job we went to was at a place called the club baron in new york city and we worked opposite cannonball adderley for two weeks and that was the biggest thrill of my life <laughs> Another very beautiful person and who did more for jazz on the air than any other person I can think of is Marion McPartland. Toward the end of her career, I had a chance to interview her over the phone. I think I was sort of between gigs. It was, I think, rock had just started to take over. And there's a station in New York, uh, WBAI, and I knew somebody there and I asked them, think I could come up and play some jazz for an hour or two at your station and they agreed and I that's really how I started I just thought I have to combat this rock invasion some way so uh, I just played records and somehow fell into uh, an easygoing way of talking and so it held me in good stead when I got to start piano jazz when you were at WBAI, did you start bringing in guests and talking to them about jazz? Well, I did eventually. I didn't 
mean to, but but one day Bill Evans just walked in unasked. I had no idea he was coming, and there he was with some records. And so I thought, well, that's, this is fine. Let's do a show, and we did. And then I thought, I think we'll start having a few guests, and we did. <laughs> we did. We had Herbie Hancock and Benny Goodman, a few people like that. And that sort of got me started, I guess. I only feel sorry that I didn't keep all the tapes that I made when I was at WBAI. I'm always happy when I get a chance to talk to someone who has released their first album and it turns out to be fabulous. Uh, one of the my favorite albums ever to be featured on the jazz session is the debut album by Nadia Nordhaus. I, I mean, I spent a good six months refining the tune. So once I had the band together, then I went back through the charts and um, fixed things up and arranged things and worked out. I mean, I kind of obsessed over it. <laughs> to be completely honest, like working out solo orders and how, how it would sound like and with, oh, what tracks should I start with and how should I organize it and, and just all these, all these sorts of artistic decisions kind of plagued me for about six months before actually recording. So, um, I, at the time I was working, um, at this music school in the afternoon, but I had the mornings free. So I used to get up really early and go in to the school and then I would, I would write, um, no, I would play for 20 minutes and then write for 10 and go 20, 10, 20, 10, 20, 10 and just, just keep doing that over and over. And then slowly I had, you know, six months later, then I had, you know, a choice of, well, I actually had a choice of 12 tunes, eight of them made it on the record. But just in terms of getting the arrangements together and then I had, um, I had a gig in town and then I played those arrangements to a couple of composer friends of mine and, and who made a couple of little suggestions. So then had all that organized because I knew when it actually came time for the recording, the musicians are so busy that, you know, having them all in the one place in itself is a minor miracle. And, and in terms of rehearsal time, there's not going to be a lot of opportunity. So I wanted to make sure that the charts were as clear as as possible so that was that was my mission for a long time I've always been a huge fan of alto saxophonist Art Pepper and also of his autobiography, Straight Life, co-written uh, with his wife, Lori Pepper. 
Art's no longer with us. Lori still is very much so. She's written a new book about her life with Art, and uh, she's been on the show a couple of times, which always made me very happy. Well, the way it worked was I had decided that I was going to release some stuff, but I kept putting it off. And with, you know, fans get in touch with me online and they say, boy, I sure wish you'd put out the uh, last concert because I can't get it anymore. It was released by the Japanese, I think, and maybe one other label, but, you know, it's not around anymore. And and uh, I thought, okay, the first one will be the last concert. And I started putting materials together for that. And then I got a call from Travel and Leisure magazine uh, from an editor there, and apparently somebody wanted to do a piece about Abashiri Japan. And there was a rumor that Art Pepper had played there. I don't know where they got this information or why they were calling in. They, just, they were basically fact-checking check, with me. And I said, yes, not only did he play there, says I, thinking fast, but uh, in fact I'm about to release an album of material that was recorded there. Because when this guy said the word Abashiri, uh, I was reminded of actually one of my favorite concerts that Art ever played, one of the most memorable that I was ever at. And it was, you know, I was planning to release it down the road some. But when he said that, I thought, oh, article in Travel and Leisure, I released the album at the same time, publicity, you know. So I said, yeah, I'm about to release it. And he said, when? And, you know, we talked a little bit about it. And uh, I got... I got to work, and he never called me back, and the article, as far as I know, never appeared. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I put out the album. There are some names that even some people on the street would know from the jazz world. One of those is certainly Sonny Rollins. On the night of Barack Obama's first election, I interviewed Sonny Rollins, and it was just a, a completely uh, wonderful and exciting experience. Uh, he's he's a legend. He's been on the show a couple times since then, and it's always great to have Sonny on the jazz session. And here's a clip uh, from that interview on election night in 2008. uh, I know your grandmother, Miriam Solomon, was active in in Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa movement and um, an important person in your early uh, kind of uh, political and social awakening. What do you think she would think of our current situation? Well, uh, I would imagine that she would probably uh, be uh, happy uh, to see that... um, we have a uh, a minority person uh, reaching these uh, 
heights of the President of the United States, I think she would feel very uh, gratified about it, like many uh, uh, black Americans and uh, I guess other minority groups also feel feel that way. Um, yeah, I'm sure she would feel uh, that it was um, justice, because that's what she was about. I don't think she wanted to... Uh, mistreat other people. She just felt that she was being mistreated. And uh, that's sort of what she instilled in, 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 in me. And uh, so that, that's what I'm sure that uh, if she were here uh, suffering on this planet like we all are, then she would probably thank God she's not here, really, and she She's paid her dues, so to speak, but I'm sure she would probably feel a sense of gratification about about uh, about even if Obama doesn't win, the idea that he's that that he's gotten to that to this uh, point of being considered as president of the United States, and that people can look at him as being somebody that's um, intelligent and uh, presidential. Uh, uh, qualities and all this stuff. You know, it's 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 a, a an important thing. It's a it's a gratifying thing to a lot of people. So I'm sure she would feel that way. Well, if you talk about someone who uh, who was there at just about the beginning and uh, and stayed with it for years and years and years, Gerald Wilson is a guy who saw the evolution of jazz, the evolution of big band music, the evolution of uh, composing for improvisers. He was there for almost all of it. And I had the chance to uh, sit down with him in New York a couple of years back. Uh, Gerald, unfortunately, also is no longer with us, but wow, what a legacy he has left. And of course, his son, Anthony Wilson, uh, is a wonderful human being, a musician in his own right. Here's a clip of my interview with Gerald Wilson. What happened there that day we got, I did, we got my uh, measured for my uniforms. Then I came back to the YMCA down on 135th Street there. And uh, that's where we would be leaving from that night. Well, now, it was Cy Oliver, who, the great arranger mm-hmm. in the Lunsford Band, he was really, and not only in the Lunsford Band, he was, he was about the toughest arranger in the, in the, in the world, Absolutely. I mean, in the whole world of jazz. And so, when Cy would come to, when the band would come to Detroit, when I was in school, I, I, I met Cy, and he liked me, and uh, after that, when they'd come to Detroit, Cy would put a chair up by him in, on the bandstand. And Lunsford wouldn't say anything about me being there, you know, like they'd be at the Greystone, and, and I'd be sitting up there just, just sitting beside him, that's all. And he liked me, you know. So, so that night, when Cy saw me in New York, he didn't know I was coming. And he said, he looked up, and the band, and he had to play out his two weeks' notice, see? So, so I says, what are you doing here? 
I said, I'm taking your place. Oh, no. <laughs> This could go on and on and on and on and on. There have been um, more than 400 episodes of the Jazz Session, hundreds and hundreds of musicians. Uh, there are lots of big names who I didn't put in this clip show and lots of my friends who are not in this clip show. And it's just because there's only there are only so many hours in the day and uh, and I didn't think of this. <laughs> Till the 8th anniversary. But anyway, uh, you know, of course, the Respect Sextet, who've been on the show quite a number of times um, and who provided the music for all these years. Donnie McCaslin is a three-peat. Uh, Jared Schoenig's been on a bunch of times. Uh, I think Dan Loomis has been on a bunch of times. Uh, Eli Asher from Respect and from Dan Loomis's band. Uh, there are lots of people who've been on a couple of times. I think of the great Cooper Moore, uh, Stefan Crump. Of course, Amy Servini has been on. Uh, there's just there's so many wonderful, wonderful people who have appeared on the show, uh, people who I now call my friends and, uh, of course, people who have helped the show over the years stay on the air. So thank you to all of you for the last eight years. Lots more uh, on the way. New interviews uh, coming up starting next week. There'll be even more new shows. There have been some new shows recently. So please go to thejazzsession.com, dig through the archives, and also check out what's happening uh, now. Make sure you subscribe subscribed in iTunes or using your favorite podcast uh, aggregator. And uh, that's it for today's show. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye.